This Dharma Talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, invisible Zoom Dharma field and kitchen. So this is the fourth talk of Rohatsu, and it's the last talk. Uh, tomorrow, at the same time, we'll come together and we will chant the Diamond Sutra together. Oh, yay, says Pam. <laughs> uh, which takes about 45 minutes or so, 40 minutes. Um, and then we'll sit until lunch. Much wiser than I am, the Diamond Sutra. <clears throat> so, in this last talk, I'm going out on a limb a little bit. Uh, I was prompted while I was preparing these talks um, by reading a review in Tricycle Magazine. Uh, it's the winter issue, so it's the most recent issue. And it's of a new book by the scholar David McMahon, who, who wrote a few years ago a very well-received book on something like Buddhism and modernism. Um, which I also haven't read. <laughs> but anyway, this book is called Rethinking Meditation, Buddhist Meditative Practices in Ancient and Modern Worlds. And um, the review is by a Zen priest, uh, who's also a psychologist who teaches in New York. Um, and he is on the, uh, he's a contributing editor at Tricycle. So those are his credentials. His name is Seth Suiho Segal whom I don't know, but um, you know as much as I do, perhaps you do know him. Now, it's always ill-advised to talk about a book you haven't read based on a review. Um, it's kind of a parlor game, though. Um, university professors sometimes say when asked if they've read a certain book, read it? I haven't even taught it. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless. <laughs> And I admit it, I'm going to set up a straw man or straw person, and we'll see what happens. Um, we'll see what you think. And then I'll read the book and probably recant, but anyway. The review tells us that this book, this is the provocative part for me, quote, dismantles the myth that the Buddhist meditation we practice today is the timeless practice handed down from the Buddha. Well, if not provoke me, it got my attention, that quote. And the review says that this is because every culture in time adapts the practice. We know this, right? So it can't be the same. It can't be the same, says uh, the book, apparently. The review says Buddha's time and culture are too distant and different from now. So how could it be the same? And so the reviewer says, as a result, the ways in which an Indian Buddhist monk in, say, 200 BCE understood meditation and the purposes to which he put it and those of an American convert Buddhist in 2023 are remarkably different. That seems to be the premise of the first half of this book. And one example that's offered by the author 
by David McMahon is the body scan that some of you may have experienced in certain forms of meditation. Uh, modern Westerners use technique, techniques such as body scans to fully appreciate and come into contact in a positive way with their own embodiment from which we are often estranged. He says, by contrast, ancient Indian monks, and he, he could have added also modern monks, use meditation on the disgusting and impermanent nature of the body to disenchant themselves from sensual pleasure and attachment to the physical self. So this is offered as one example of how ancient practices and modern practices around the physical self seem to be very different and have different goals, different purposes in training us. McMahon also attacks the notion that Buddhism is, as it's sometimes said to be, somehow a science of the mind or the brain that helps us to see things the way they truly are, that is to say, objectively in some way. And this is from the review, referring to McMahon. Instead, he describes how mental maps from different schools of Buddhism shape and limit the kinds of insights practitioners are likely to discover through meditation. <clears throat> it makes a great deal of difference whether one thinks one becomes a Buddhist through developing and embodying certain mental views, mental states, attitudes, and competencies, or whether one views enlightenment as an uncovering and realization of the Buddha one already is. And McMahon does allow the possibility that meditation, this is a quote from the review, that meditation has the potential to deconstruct categorical thinking, a possibility also suggested by Nagarjuna and Zen's admonition to go beyond words and letters. Thus, different strands of the Buddhist tradition both constrain and liberate discovery. He says, what meditation will show you depends on how you think about meditation. I can put the book, I had to put the review down at that point, thinking about meditation. We are all still limited by our social imaginaries, our condition, our mental habits, and the constraining visions of our traditions. Okay, so again, according to the review, this is the project of the first half of this book. In the second half of the book, McMahon focuses on three late modern cultural aspects. These are, these are his categories. And he calls them ethics of these different categories, the ethics of appreciation, the ethics of authenticity, and the ethics of autonomy, and how these relate to Buddhist practice. So the ethics of appreciation, in terms of the kind of Buddhism that people sometimes practice or take up, is basically the embodiment, positive embodiment, and kind of mindfulness as a sort of therapy, which he claims are not found in early Indian Buddhism. By an ethics of authenticity, he means to discover an authentic self. This is a modern preoccupation. Our authentic self that needs to be uncovered, actualized, and expressed. This is a kind of Western preoccupation. And the reviewer adds, of course, early Indian Buddhism insisted that there was no such thing as an essential self. 
or an, or an unchanging self. So there's a contrast again that, that is being drawn between what we're about and what uh, early Buddhism was about. And the last category, autonomy, personal individual autonomy, McMahon points to the contemporary notion of an interdependent self with attendant ethical responsibilities. This dovetails with our uh, modern perspective on ourselves. So this might, language might sound familiar to, to you as intersectional, as contingent, and in dialogue or relationship with others. This is the ethical aspect of it. We may, be, we may have a certain kind of uh, autonomy or agency, but we are also permeable. Of course, I think we Buddhists should say we are in dialogue with or in relationship with all beings, but anyway. So I hesitate to set fire to the straw man of this review, but I could say that just as a kind of general response to the way things have been set up and analyzed in this review and apparently in this book, that it's not clear to me that all practitioners in the present necessarily share some of these later modern cultural views or that American convert Buddhists as a category is particularly useful in this context. And you probably have your own thoughts, but let's let's save them. Because what I want to focus on and set this up the straw man, as I said, this was a question that was arising for me already. How do we regard the 2,500 years of unfolded Dharma that, you know, with this uh, jumping off point, these, these hundreds of years of unfolding Dharma that do not pertain to the Indian monk of 200 CE? What is it that we're about anyway? Buddhism has long been concerned with its own corruption or decadence, and even the Buddha worried about it, right? What would happen after he died? Would the Dharma be able to be transmitted? There's a whole kind of trope of the declining world and the 500 years of mapo, right, of decline. When practices sadly diminished, right? The question is, is our experience or our potential as human beings here and now so radically different from the Buddhist time or 200 years of the, uh, in the common era that we are really engaged in doing something entirely different or, or what? And I so I was thinking about this and worrying about it. And as I was preparing the talk on the grassroof hut, which I gave as the second talk, I came across a talk by Zen teacher Barry Maggot. And even though it was about the grassroof hut, it actually focused most uh, essentially on seeing reality directly, on perceiving or experiencing reality directly. He's also a psychologist. So his question in his talk was, how do we do that? Can we do that in our modern world? Or is it, or is it kind of a hopeless task at this point? Is, are things just too different? Can we not really have the experience that the Buddha had or many of our teachers in the past? 
or even the present. So Maggie says, well, there, there are two, for him, two distinct classes of people who think that they're seeing reality directly or they're preoccupied with doing so. And on the one hand, again, he sets up a dichotomy, the scientists who are trying to understand reality using their methods. And the other, he says, are positivist philosophers that he's very devoted to. If you read him on Facebook, he's always engaging with philosophers. And these philosophers who want to get rid of all metaphors and just have the facts, just perceive things as they are, and especially to get rid of language, right? All the complications that language imposes on reality and just get down to some kind of pure view, pure data. But he says other people who talk about seeing reality directly are mystics. And I think he would say Buddhists are kind of mystics. We may also be scientists and philosophers, but we're kind of mystics in his view. And mystics think that when you strip away all the concepts and metaphors, you may not have facts, but you have some kind of encounter, some kind of preferably dazzling encounter <laughs> with life as it is. And he thinks, and this is a quote, he says, personally, I think that all these groups are caught in the grip of a fantasy, seeing reality directly. And it's as if we're all in the midst of a language game. And one of the games we play in this language game is imagining that we can step out of the game and see the world free of language. But he says, that's just another move in the game that we're playing. Start to feel hopeless. <laughs> no. So he shifts his, his, his uh, engagement with this and says, maybe we can ask ourselves who transmitted to Shakyamuni Buddha. When we chant the lineage, we chant the names of six ancestors before the Buddha, he points out, right? These may be what we would call mythical or not real, not historical figures. But he says, you know, it expresses this idea of the lineage going back endlessly into time, beginningless beginning, there is no beginning, which I think is right. But maybe it's also a koan, who transmitted to Buddha? What did the Buddha awaken to and how? What will we awaken to? And how do we understand the connection between the Buddha and us? He says, and this is a, an interesting question, is it passed down to us like a relic that we keep in the family? We worry, are we having the same experience? What would it mean to imagine that someone who lived in India 2,500 years ago was having the same experience that we're having. I don't actually think we need to imagine that we're sort of told that that's the, that's the thing. He says, is there any such anything such as culturally or historically context-free experience? Do we think enlightenment then is the same as enlightenment uh, now? And then he points out, obviously, Practice today is not what practice was when Shakyamuni was living, and we don't practice the way he did or the way they did in Tang Dynasty China or the Japan of Dogen's day. There are many differences, and there are many things that bear quite a lot of resemblance, like 
what we talked about yesterday with our Oriyoki practice. <clears throat> he says, practice, the practice of Zazen comes down to us in ways that are complex, that are both the same and different, <laughs> what we think we're doing and how we do it. One way, he says, this is a quote, we try to naturalize and demystify some of the language about Buddha mind is to try and say that what we're doing is practicing in a way that allows us to simply be present in this moment. So here's he's really stripping things down to this very simple kind of awareness. And he said, there are people who have been doing that for centuries, each in their own way, each awakening in a sense to a very different moment our moment, that's his view, and putting their experience of that awakening in different religious and cultural contexts. But he says, there's something very basic about sitting still, being quiet, and just being present that has the potential in human beings to be very transformative. And he says, no culture owns this. Over thousands of years in many different cultures, the kinds of transformations that occur from being still and silent and present is something that we keep, we humans, keep rediscovering and recreating and passing along in one cultural container or another. So that's how he solves his koan. <clears throat> and he says, you know, there's many ways, not just sitting still, not just sitting in silence, that we can break down the distinction or experience the lack of distinction between, say, the ordinary and the extraordinary. Right? This can happen, this shift. This shift can happen when you're dancing, when you're painting, when you're, when you're uh, writing poetry. And when that happens, when the shift happens, nothing is really changed, but everything is experienced differently. He says, quote, sometimes or somehow, that is the capacity in human beings that gets tapped in all sorts of different ways, all sorts of disciplines, through all sorts of disciplines, over and over and over again. He said, when we encounter the collision of the extraordinary and the ordinary, it's very hard to put into words, but it's all too easy to put into metaphor. <laughs> I like that. He says, eventually, these experiences can get concretized as if there were some big cosmic mind that we're getting in touch with, right? And then people create, uh, concretize their experience. So for Magid, <clears throat> he concludes this, this talk. He says, the grass hut, grass roof hut, the whole crux of that poem are the two lines that we talked about. The, the crux of the whole teaching, and that's if we want to know the undying person in the hut, one that is timeless, <clears throat> don't separate from this skin bag here and now, right? And he says, the undying person in the hut, the original master, Buddha mind, all these things that we create as metaphor and then sometimes make into a thing somewhere and someplace. He says, don't separate that abstraction that you've idealized and think is it from this skin bag, hmm. from this body, from this relative thing. 
don't separate the absolute from the relative. Right? And I agree. It's the same message of the Sandokai, but situated in an apparent place with a specific person. In the hut, there's an ordinary old man or old woman. And in that hut is also the Buddha Dharma, says Magan. He says, don't separate the original master from this old skin bag. It's about the immediacy of now. It's the only place where Buddha mind is to be found. So I agree that the point is not to separate from the stinky skin bag, right? And I agree that the Buddha returned to balance after trying to negate or transcend it and found you know, the middle way between luxury and a complete asceticism. But I want to go back to Hongzhi, who we talked about yesterday. Um, Hongzhi, I'm going to quote part of what I quoted yesterday, but quote it again with a little more context. This is what Hongzhi says about expressing the merging of relative and absolute that manifests in this one person, one person, right? But is not limited to this one. So this is Echo Hensho. Hongzhi says, turning the light around, Echo, is not turning around the light of one body, <clears throat> but turning around the very energy of creation. It is not stopping random imagination only temporarily. It is truly emptying compulsion for all time. Almudra says the light is neither inside or outside the self. Mountains, rivers, sun, moon, and the whole earth are this light. So it is not only in the self. All the operations of intelligence, knowledge, and wisdom are also this light. So it is not outside the self. The light of heaven and earth fills the universe. The light of one individual also naturally extends through the heavens and covers the earth. Therefore, once you turn the light around, everything in the world is turned around. The turning around is stopping, shamatha. The light is seeing or perceiving, vipassana. Stopping without seeing is called turning around without light. Seeing without stopping is called having light without turning it around. Remember this, says Hongzhi. If you can look back again and again into the source of mind, whatever you are doing, not sticking to any image of person or self at all, then this is turning the light around wherever you are. This is the finest practice. So, Buddha said one of the things he said when experiencing awakening, he expressed his freedom from the wheel of samsara by saying, house builder, you have now been seen you shall not build the house again. Right? No more huts <laughs> when you're liberated. But not so fast, says the Mahayana. Right? He says, and this is again from the commentary of Musang, 
right? A basic template of the Bodhisattva model of Mahayana Buddhism is the simultaneous practice of wisdom and compassion. So Bodhisattvas stay in the world. A Bodhisattva is active in the world, motivated by compassion for all beings while being firmly grounded in the wisdom of shunyata or emptiness. Acts of compassion have no meaning in the sense of validating anything. Bodhisattva acts of compassion are just acts of compassion and do not need a reason for their justification. And Lu Song quotes his original teacher, his Korean Zen teacher, Sung San Sunim, who used to say, human beings have no meaning. There's no reason for them, which really flipped out his Western audiences. But his point is, if everything is dependently arisen according to causes and conditions, there is no inherent meaning in the appearance of things. This is the terrifying aspect of the wisdom of shunyata. But he would say, and this is Sun, Sun Song's turning of this teaching, if we have a choice of turning no meaning into great meaning, we enter fully into the bodhisattva paradigm of the Mahayana tradition. The compassion of the bodhisattva is for the world of appearances in which deluded beings are caught in their own trap and experiencing varieties of dukkha. The bodhisattva is motivated to find innumerable upaya or skillful means to address these varieties of suffering, but never loses sight of the ultimate truth of emptiness. The bodhisattva is never confused about the source of the world of appearances and can manifest equally numerous varieties of compassion without ever turning compassion into yet another conceptual category. So that's how you break out of the trap of language. Do you have any questions or comments? I had a strong emotional reaction to the premise of that book that you were reacting to. I feel feel like they're getting trapped in, um, or a way to explain it for me is that they're getting trapped in the relative. Of course, practice is different in all these different ways from 2,500 years ago. Um, But it misses the point entirely to say that that makes it a different beast. Um, And and then, uh, like, it it seems as, as, as ludicrous to me as saying, like, Tassahara practice is different because they don't have cell phones. Um, so therefore, it's not the same practice. Um, but but is that, it, and I wanted to ask you, is that going too far to sitting in the absolute? Like, where is the point where engaging, where we're drawing the line and saying this practice is distinct or different or um, cut off, maybe is the right word, from another practice? We're always defending. Like I'm shocked when I get emails from people at Katasahara. I'm still shocked by it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it didn't used to be any email, or at least it was very, if there was, it was like a few people who had it who had business. 
and then suddenly I'm getting emails from people who are aren't you in practice period, you know? <laughs> and it all started to change when we began recording talks and putting them on the internet and you could listen to talks from Tassajara, which in the old days you had to go to Tassajara to be there and experience those talks with the people who were there and the bringing forward of the Dharma that occurs when you've got, what, 30, 40, 50 people stuck in a narrow valley sweating together, freezing together, bumping up against each other. And, you know, the teacher or the Shuso ascends the seat and says something and everybody, you know, there's response, right? And you can like look into that or have the feeling like you're there, but you're not there. And now we have, you know, Unkai asking for an AI assistant. <laughs> <laughs> so my instinct being a kind of conservative person in some ways is to say, no cell phones ever, never <laughs> at Tassajara. Don't ruin it. And probably there'll be cell phones at Tassajara eventually, you know, or I think it's that certain things are already what I would call loosening, hmm. but they're changing like everything, right? Is it better, worse, different? I don't know. Like, I think, you know, I come back to the soft, flexible mind of the Bodhisattva. Yeah, I should just like not be so rigid. So that's about that. But I think there is this question, this deeper question. You know, have we, are things so different for us? Us, whoever us is, that's another thing. Who is this us? But whoever we are that this is being directed to in this time and these places uh, where people practice, um, that we can't possibly have the same experience. Oh, what do you all think? Oh, here come the hands. <laughs> Sorry, I hope this isn't too much of a derailment, but like, I guess my response was, I don't know, I, I have a, I have an undergraduate background with philosophy and I'm a little bit suspicious of it as, as a discipline in that, uh, uh, the basic question that this original writer, this book is asking of whether, you know, uh, uh, this experience we have is mediated and whether it's fundamentally different from the experience of a monk from 2,200 years ago or whatever. I kind of, there's a part of me that wonders whether that's a viable question from, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not here to be philosophers. We're here to practice and wake up and if there's it, it's still from the just looking at buddhism it seems like pretty clear that there's a possibility of waking up that's still here and whether it's the same one or something different feels like kind of a big waste of time <laughs> <laughs> like if this, like like i think if you'd ask the buddha this very question the buddha showed up you'd say why are you asking me this you know like the buddha very famously was asked all of these metaphysical questions and he declined to answer them and i still think uh they either they, they you can kind of get trapped in them thank you uh, <laughs> yes sorry i might lose my nerve um i feel like we're all having a different experience and there's no way to possibly know what everybody else's experience is i think that there are similarities but um like just two people talking side by side, the person on the left is feeling the person on the right. 
So it's a different experience. The person on the right is feeling the person on the left. So that's different. And just just space and time and where you are in your history and your background. I just I don't think we can all have the same one. But at the same time, <laughs> there are a lot of similarities. And we're all human beings. Um, and I think a lot of the guidelines for practice are an attempt to transcend what you just said. Like, yes, we have all these differences and they are situated in experience and current cultural categories and and so on and so forth. Plus just this, it's the, you know, the question is, can I, when I say, you know, the word love, do we mean the same thing when we hear that? We have, we keep unpacking, you know, and adding more words to it to try to fine tune our understanding of what we're talking about. Or red, well, you know, what kind of red? Right? These are classic questions that people grapple with. I think one of the things about the, the way, speaking of different experiences based on things like place and time, and in this case, gender, I feel like there's a kind of uh, celebration of the male monk in India in 200 CE as having the authentic experience, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And the rest of us yeah. uh, mm -hmm. are, you know, are like, we're doing something different. We're kind of awake, you know, we have this access to mindfulness or other, other, you know, things, but it's kind of like the real practice was there, <laughs> you know, people living extremely simply and, you know, on alms and, you know, no cell phones. Right. Well, maybe the practice, that's real today is what fits with what's today and the practice that was real back then is what fit with that time and place and culture so our real practice can look different even though there's still similarities like it's both yeah. we'll comment further just because okay. i don't want to hijack okay. the Conversation. Uh, is it Mel? Yes. Yeah, I was reminded of a talk. I think it was Kokia who said this, but he said something like half baked sodos tend to have like tend to mistake their individual subjectivity for like universal subjectivity, whereas half baked rinzais tend to mistake one moment of enlightenment for like the whole of enlightenment. And I thought that was interesting to consider that like maybe the tendency to like think that what we're experiencing is universal may in itself be like something that is kind of like a specific perhaps blind spot and i don't think i understand fully like what the reason may be that like our tradition or if it's true that our tradition may lend itself to like that kind of particular missing but i do think it's like helpful to consider and kind of to keep asking the question and i think about it as kind of like a field and like you can see the field clearly, but you're never going to be able to see it from like north and east at the same time. And the way that you're going to take care of like this part of the field has to depend on like what's growing in this particular season. And like to honor that, I think is fun. I, was, I, I couldn't quite process what half, what you were saying when you said half baked soto, and I, I then I. I, and then you continued, and I, I got it. I had this bakery counter appear before you. <laughs> 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 the sign that said, half baked soda, half price. <laughs> would you mind repeating that, that statement again about the half baked soda and half baked rinzai? Yeah, I'm, I'm 
paraphrasing, but I think what I remember was half-baked sodas mistake their individual subjectivity for universal subjectivity, and half-baked Rinzai's mistake one moment of enlightenment for the whole of enlightenment. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I was going to say kind of the same thing Crystal said, but from a point of view of the book we just studied, uh, I remember one of the things that really left uh, was helpful to me was when Suzuki said um, that we're all so completely different because of our different um, acclimation that there's no way you can compare us. And I guess that extends through time as well as now. Um, and this guy is comparing something kind of meaningless. I mean, this is what Crystal said too. I mean, we're all so different and have so many different experiences that it's pointless to compare us. So it occurs to me putting together the three of you, you know, it, it is different. Our understanding of what our self is is different, but what the Buddha teaches, or you know, what our what our teaching is, says is, nothing can be compared, and everything has absolute value. Right? Each individual expression, each individual is a complete expression of the universe. Each individual thing is completely expressing the whole of the universe. So that helps me at least kind of cut through all of this. Like, are we having the same experience or not? And then. You know, this 2,500 years of unfolding, I like the word unfolding. Sometimes it feels like elaborating, you know. How did we get from one robe, one bowl, you know, begging for our food to all the trappings, right, that we have now? As, as even Dogen says, the many bowls, right, and the chopsticks and the spoon and the cloths and the bells and the gongs and, you know, what happened? Um, well, we refined you know ways to practice together for one thing we no longer go out on rounds begging for food and or rely on that completely i mean there's still takahatsu right japanese monks going on the rounds but that that isn't the only way that they live they support themselves also in other ways and so we don't have the same we, there's still a dichotomy between monks and lay people ordinary people householders but it's not like the householders are in this relationship of, I get merit from supporting the monks and I can hope for a, a better rebirth maybe, right? I, I'm doing a good deed by offering food or other forms of support to the monks and the monks are the ones who practice, right? So this is one unfolding that I think is good, right? in, my, in my opinion, um, that we practice, men and women practice together in our place and time and um, all, everyone is welcome to practice, and that we uh, we don't expect. We support ourselves. We do our own work. We don't have people coming in and you know cleaning up after us. I, to the extent possible, we try to replicate a day of you know no work as a day of no eating. And we, we may do that by becoming members of Austin Zen Center and supporting it that way, but we also do Sochi together, Sama. We wash dishes, we cook, you know, we pull weeds, we sew. Yeah. So we do adapt. 
and we do unfold. And um, one of the things I like about this particular tradition as it's unfolding in America is the fact that we are all together. You know, we're not segregated in ways that were operative in the past, and I think we should be moving more towards that kind of liberation. Yeah. I like silence changed in the past 2,500 years. It's noisier. Leaf blowers. Leaf blowers. Yes. Yeah. You ha you, there's, I think I, I read somewhere in the New York Times probably some months ago or years ago <coughs> that there's really no place on earth now that you, where there is not some sound trace of human beings. Even if it's a very high flying distant plane going over the poles, that there's, there's human noise is everywhere. But that's separating us out, right, also, and saying, bad, human noise, bad. So can we incorporate it? Yeah. I, I was practicing in Arkansas at yeah. Gilbert's G yeah. uh, last May, and nature is so loud. <laughs> <laughs> so much louder than the city. Can, hmm. you, give, can you give an example? Uh, you know, I'm not a nature, but I can't give words yeah. to it, you know, because I, what I thought were crickets were actually frogs. <laughs> and I, I just, I don't know what all the sounds were, but it felt like a roar sometimes. If you were there in the spring, it probably was. In the woods in the spring, it's a roar. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, it's like Suzuki Roshi says in his commentary on the Sandokai, you know, about the bluebird, I mean the blue jay, right? <laughs> this famous quote about how blue jay is not such a nice sound, right? We we think, ugh, blue jay, you know, how annoying. But he said, just let the blue jay be the blue jay, and it will fly right into your heart, you know. And the blue jay, the blue jay will re be reading with you, right? You will be you will be the blue jay reading your book. So, interesting. Yes, Sanjay. Uh, two things. I, I um, thank you. It was quite provocative. Um, <laughs> we I, I, uh, I would say that uh, my practice is probably very different from the practice of a sulfur bacteria. Uh, <laughs> however, the scope of life on Earth, uh, humans are really new, um, a pretty fresh phenomenon, and I think that human bodies are. 2,500 years ago are human bodies. Human bodies are human bodies. That's that's the way I see it. Uh, so, and the the prerequisite for practicing is a human body. So that, and also um, I really resonate strongly with what Crystal said. I think um, uh, for the sake of expediency, I'll I'll say my meditation. Uh, nobody knows what's going on in my meditation. Not even me. <laughs> the 10,000 sages don't know. No. And not this guy either. I, uh, I had a, a practice meeting yesterday with someone, and we mutually confessed that one of the things that we're doing when we're sitting, we find ourselves doing, we're talking about counting the breath, you know, as a practice, as, as a, like a kind of, you know, shamatha stabilizing practice. And uh, I said, well, I'm sitting up here facing out, and I obsessively count and recount the number of people in the room. Over and over and over again. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Was that six or seven? One, two, three. I, I can, you know, even when the lights are down and my eyes are basically, I can still see you, right? So that's what happens in my mind. And I like to hope that, you know, all-inclusive zazen includes that as well. And then I wake up to what I'm doing and drop it. And it resumes itself, usually, sometime in <laughs> <a> period. <laughs> yeah, it's just what's happening in my mind. This one little mind. Yes? Um, I, uh, I like what you said about sound. Um, I have the same feeling about language. I don't think it's fair to rail on language so much. <laughs> it's kind of like birdsong. Can be. Um, I think I've used this. But, uh, yeah. Well, well, sometimes I get hung up on it. Like yeah. this thing um, with uh, compassion. What was it? Compassionate acts have no meaning. Yeah, if I look at one perspective, that just feels like nihilism. But if I look at it from another, I mean, but then I also can say, I think that's true. I think they have no meaning. I think they are their own meaning. That's, yeah. Um, and that, that's how sound feels too. When it's like just sound, it's its own, has its own meaning. Um, so. That's one thing I got out of your, your talk. I also didn't really mind the stripping away so much um, of what we think Buddhism is. I mean, how should I know? Try it on for yourself, the Buddha said. Try it on. See if it see if it works for you. See if yeah. it's true in your experience. Yeah. Well, I'm just His teaching. What I appreciate about our practice is the encouragement to investigate my own experience mm -hmm. over and over and over mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And that is a well that I keep pulling water out of, and it seems endless so far. Um, and very um, effective for becoming a compassionate person. And that that's, you know, feels meaningful to me. And that's, you know, what I get from nature too. I see that in nature, so I feel closer to that. Oh, that's some that's my response <laughs> for your talk. You know, we say it goes beyond words and letters, but I'm not sure we're supposed to get rid of them. There are times when we drop them, and there are times when we need them. How mm -hmm. else? What else points? You know, for us. Yeah. And we maybe you can sense in someone uh, something that. I mean, why do we resonate with some teachers? We, we, you know, teachers that we think, I want to follow that person. I want, you know, one way we might formulate this, especially early on, is I want what they have. Right? I want that. I want to be like that. Until we realize we can only be like ourselves. <laughs> we can only be ourselves. It's not just in the words. Not just in the words. And it's maybe not in the words at all, but the words help us to get there. There is a Shosan ceremony a long time ago in a state far away, which is considered the south, but was is now for me way up north. Mm -hmm. And um, a long-term 
senior student walked up to the teacher and said, if our practice is beyond words, why do we talk so much? And she said, because we have tongues. The teacher said, because we have tongues. So yeah. But it's also good to put it down and see what's there when we're not talking. What helps me is just, it's all information. Communication. It's all communication, everything is. I mean, how much do we communicate when we're not talking? A lot. Maybe more. So, I don't know. Anyway, simple. Brad Anderson, in recent years, has frequently given you know, entire Dharma talks around the proposition that he says, I am a conversation. I am in conversation with all beings. Mm. And he uses conversation, you know, he uses that word, which is, <laughs> right? So brings like, up for me. He likes to play with language. <laughs> that he likes playing with language. But, I'm only breathing with a conversation with creation once, and mm. I haven't let go of that yet. I like that. But we could probably sit here the rest of the day. Sorry. Oh, yes. Please. This is perfect because I was about to say before Matt did that um, I really like the titles of Kadiviri Roshi's first two books Returning to Silence and You Have to Say Something. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think somewhere between those, our life of practice flows. Because I think, you know, and the Buddha wasn't going to say anything initially mm-hmm. after his awakening. Yeah. And then um, my understanding is that his first encounter with someone didn't go so well. So, <laughs> um, and so we thought, okay, so how would I, how can I shape my speech, not from my point of view, mm-hmm. but perhaps to resonate with others? So spoke to the five ascetics of the middle way, and of suffering, and of clinging, um, and of a path to freedom, rather than just pointing at the top of the mountain and being like, ta-da! <laughs> so that's that's the upaya of a Buddha or a bodhisattva, right? The skillful means, the, the, the targeting your speech or whatever your, your actions in ways that the intention is to assist others in ways that will be effective. Which requires a lot of listening. A lot of listening, discernment. Yeah. And there were times when the Buddha was silent. People came expecting a talk, and he ascended the seat, didn't say anything, got down. <laughs> you know. Um, and there's one story that uh, I quoted. It's in this. Uh, I think it's in the discussion of the four horses where some practitioner of another discipline, another way, came to him and asked for teaching, and he didn't say anything. And after a little bit, the person thanked him profusely for opening his mind and went away. You know, Ananda or somebody asked the Buddha, what was that about? You know, and he said, well, he was, you know, like the best horse. He didn't, he didn't need any words. He got something else. He got something that was not in words because that was right for him so the buddha didn't speak so i I agree with you yeah and yes and and thank you for the deep time perspective also uh greg because yeah we worry about whether we're so different from people what 2500 years ago it's a blip right in the great 
unfolding of the uh, what we call the earth and everything on it, all of its life. Probably we're not very different. Mm -hmm. Thank you all very much.